Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Amen. When you read the Acts of the Apostles, it becomes clear how much the Apostle Paul had rubbed off on that book's human author, his fellow evangelist and frequent fellow traveler, Luke. And sometimes that rubbing off works the other way around, too. When you read the New Testament letters of Paul, here and there it becomes apparent how much of Luke, the beloved physician, rubbed off on him. This clinical interest in anatomy and physiology, the parts and systems of the human body and the functioning of each individual part and system for your overall health, this is exactly the Ephesians 4 image of Christ's church and each of its members working together as we should. The church has become God's new and countercultural organism, his vital new society. 
his new humanity made alive from the dead in Christ. I hear a lot these days about social media and how these tools are transforming this generation's relationships. But I have to wonder, are these things actually transforming us? Aren't they just giving vast numbers of old, run-of-the-mill sinners new avenues globally down which to parade our old sins? Machinery has no power to transform us into anything I'd want to be transformed into. Now, I freely confess myself to be a 50-something fuddy-duddy with absolutely zero interest in Facebook or tweeting or anything else that involves producing a huge electronic signature for people I don't even know. And yes, I'm sure it has merit as a means of communication, but as an outsider looking into the whole social media phenomenon, I see coming up behind me a generation of young people who are frighteningly detached and self-absorbed, frighteningly disengaged from the feelings and moral sensibilities of others, frighteningly full of themselves, Christ at the cross redeemed us not to serve ourselves in a life of happy, self-satisfied, self-isolation from other sinners and their problems. He died to save us, yes, but then also to incorporate us, to draw us into something much bigger than ourselves, to gather us lost sheep into one redeemed fold for the glory of that great shepherd of the sheep who came to seek and to save that which was lost. As gracious as the Lord Jesus Christ has been to each of us, as wondrous as his love toward us individually has been and is, and I'm not diminishing or understating any of those things, the truth more fully told is that once redeemed from our slavery to sin, we no longer live for ourselves alone. He didn't intend us to. He doesn't intend us to. He grafts us into the vine, brings us into himself, fits us organically into the glorious body of Christ, somehow by leading us prisoners in his triumph, making it more glorious still. Now let's look at this letter to the Ephesians. For three exhilarating chapters, totaling 66 verses, the Holy Spirit's just put Paul's considerably gifted mind and personality to the grand task of spinning out for us the golden thread of our redemption in Christ. The letter opens, and there's precisely one verse to identify the writer and his addressees, then precisely one verse more for a salutation. And then only three verses into the letter, the Holy Spirit spurs the Apostle into a full gallop. One single Greek sentence that takes us from the beginning of God's redemptive purposes before the world was, all the way through to the church's present enjoyment of the Spirit, who, he says, is given to us as a pledge of his finished work, yet to be in the final summing up of all things in Christ. One 
hundred Greek words into this marvelous marathon of a sentence brings you only as far as the middle of verse 9, with five and a half more verses to go before the first break in thought. One sentence, 12 verses long, 202 words. Seminarians cringe at the task of diagramming this sentence. The English translations all break it up into smaller parts. This sentence is a highway in the desert and the rest stops along the way are few. Someday we may look together at these amazing first three doctrinal chapters of Ephesians. The redemptive purposes and power of God take the careful reader's breath away and lead Paul himself to that great doxology as he contemplates it all. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. To him be the glory in the church. It's the glorious God who eternally elected and then in time redeemed and called and equipped and strengthened the church that's occupied all the machinery of Paul's mind for the past three chapters. It's all been for the church. Now he turns us to the matter of God's glory in the church. All this grace poured out on sinners from eternity was leading, you see, to something vastly greater than a mere collection of happily rescued sinners randomly scattered across time and space. This grace was poured out to assemble us together and transform us into a bride, one radiantly glorious people made worthy of him. To incorporate us into one body, the glorious body of Christ, our head. It's a high calling, beloved. But it's a mistake to think this mystical union of head and body simply happens automatically. If it were one seamless, painless, natural transition from darkness to light, from old man in Adam to new man in Christ then the letter to the Ephesians might well have entered with that doxology at the end of chapter 3. But of course you discover it's not so. You discover there's work to do if we're going to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. Christ redeems you by his grace, and then he incorporates you into his visible church on a profession of faith. As we saw last time, he first contributed the new birth of regeneration. But from that moment on, it's your faith, your repentance. And so you've been converted. And now you find yourself a new Christian in the visible church. And the experience isn't always what you might have hoped for, is it? Because these people still have rough edges. These people, even in the visible church, they're still 
impatient with their spouses, impatient with their children. They still have these annoying little habits, and if you're wise, you soon realize, as you look at these new brothers and sisters in God's new society, that you're looking at yourself in a mirror. You see less of Jesus Christ and more of yourself than you'd really like to see. And so the Holy Spirit prods us onward. Don't stay here. Don't settle down into these easy old habits that are made easier because you see them in others around you. Those were Adam's habits. They're not the habits of Christ. Read verses 2 and 3. It's a virtual portrait of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. Christ in the house. Christ along the road. Christ when he lay down and Christ when he woke up. Did the squabbling of the disciples ever once shake him from this humility, this gentleness and patience and love? The triune God is at work in his church. He's at work here. Through faith in Christ, we're his bride, we're his children, we're his family, and one true home. And he will have tranquility at home. It's the rule. He will have tranquility here. Listen, friends, sustained tranquility is no more automatic in the church than our first incorporation as members was. It requires of us the diligence that you read of in verse 3. It is an endeavor, isn't it? An endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's work. But let not your heart be troubled, because there's a plan to make it work, and not one of your own devising, not one of my own devising. The triune God wills not only the peace in his home, the church, he wills the bringing into being of a church as well-run, as orderly, as homeostatically balanced, as is the healthy human body. Some years ago, I took a number of undergraduate courses with a view to a possible second career in nursing. My own lengthy hospitalization put an end to that, but I've got to tell you that every class of both semesters of anatomy and physiology was something of a worship experience. Not that the professors intended them to be, by any means. But in these classes, one reads of chemical processes that are so complex involving biological mechanisms at a molecular level turned on or turned off by the presence or absence of enzymes in precisely the right quantities at precisely the right moment to produce precisely the right effect for a healthy system. The thoughtful student either has to congratulate this brilliant system for its brilliance or worship its brilliant designer. There's a plan for harmony in the body of Christ, and it's the Father's plan who is over all and through all and in all.
It involves the use of the respective gifts Christ lavished on us at his ascension. Now it was, of course, the custom in ancient times for conquering kings to receive tribute from the vanquished. And the cross of Jesus Christ was a great king's mighty struggle. It was the climax and culmination, in fact, of a long campaign that began back in the Garden of Eden. Now on this hill, on this early April day, the ruler of this world would either be finally broken and dislodged, or otherwise establish himself against the God who made him. That question would all be settled finally at Calvary, the decisive battle. And the ordeal of the cross drained the God-men dry. Absolutely dry. He had no more of himself to give than he gave. But at the end, mission accomplished. It cost him everything. But mission accomplished. It is finished, he said. When he rose from the dead on the third day by the power of the Holy Spirit, he rose the victor over sin and death. And he led captive a host of captives rescued. Who are they, you ask? Well, look to your right and look to your left. They are men and women and children on whom Satan dare not lay a hand because they are Christ's. They belong to him, Christ the King, Christ the Victor. The 68th Psalm that Paul quotes here, of course, says in its 18th verse, Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captive thy captives, thou hast received gifts among men even the, among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. Thou hast received gifts. That was the ancient custom. But Paul doesn't strictly quote the psalm here. He applies it. He takes the victory of Christ to its mediatorial end. He received these gifts of men in order to give them away again. And the tribute wasn't silver. It wasn't gold. Why should Satan be interested in silver and gold? Why should Christ be interested in silver and gold paid him as tribute? No, it's the souls of men. The souls of men once held in thraldom to Satan and his lies now led out in Christ's triumph. We, you and I, are the gifts he received at the cross. We are the gifts he gave to the church when he ascended on high. Some were apostles, some prophets, some gospel preachers, some are pastor teachers. There are other gifts he gave the church listed in other places, like 1 Corinthians 12, 28. He gave these gifts, the souls of redeemed men, he gave them to the church to equip us each and all for service, for the building up of the body of Christ to its full maturity. 
Well, what do you suppose that full maturity is going to look like? What will it feel like actually to attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God? I don't know precisely. I can only point you to the Gospels and say, who is it you find there? You'll find the man described as we've already seen in verses 2 and 3, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For as long as we inhabit this earthly tabernacle, as he did, this is the walk worthy of our calling. But of course, between that day and this, there have been some changes in his situation. Today, he's ascended on high. Beginning nearly 2,000 years ago, he's been returning the ransomed gifts back to the church for service. Today, he sits in regal splendor at the right hand of his Father in heaven. Today, he reigns one Lord through one faith, sealed with one baptism. He reigns on our behalf. Over all things, he reigns on our behalf. And we pray the day might hasten when the kings of the earth and prime ministers and presidents and congresses and all high courts of all the nations will give him the homage genuinely due the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. After all, those aren't empty titles. He is who he is. But while we pray for the day when the earth is covered with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, as we pray for that coming day when the kingdoms of the earth will have become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, let us first pray that he'll reign in love and power over us, his church, his body, that we'll be obedient to our calling. I don't know, I I just can't fully imagine what it will be for the church to be fully grown up into the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. I sense there's an ocean of glory there that my little thimble of a brain can't begin to comprehend. But I know this maturity will only come as we speak the truth to one another in love and submit to one another in love, and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's at the joints, of course, that the respective members of our own respective bodies move. It's at our joints many of us first feel the onset and discomforts of aging. And here at the joints, God, the designer and architect of this, the Holy Spirit's temple, has supplied us with everything needed for unrestricted, pain-free movement. Correspondence of parts, cartilage, synovial fluid, everything needed. In the body of Christ, let us offer one another everything needed to smooth the way between us. Let's work together as we should, 
in all mutual submission and respect, not mechanically, not as cogs in a wheel, but organically, as members of the same body under the same head, even Jesus who loved us and gave himself up for us. When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men.